We come today to the close of Advent. Now, traditionally, of course, Advent is a four-week preparation that concludes on Christmas Day. And as you can see, we have no more candles to light. We took the trees down. Uh, The fifth and final candle of Advent, the Christ candle, we lit on Christmas Eve. But I would remind you that the word Advent comes from the Latin root Adventus, which means coming, or advenire, which means to come. And in the New Covenant church, we understand what even the faithful of the Old Covenant could not see and could not understand, namely, that the Messiah comes not once, but twice. He came the first time, as we saw last week, as the suffering servant. He will come a second time as the reigning king. In other words... With all due respect to the 1,700-year history of Advent in the Christian church, I think Advent needs to be five weeks long. I think we need a fifth Advent week after Christmas focusing upon the second Advent of the Messiah. When he comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, when the trumpet sounds and he sends forth his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the four corners of the earth, and he takes his seat upon his glorious throne to judge the nations of the earth. The fact of the matter is that many of the messianic prophecies that we find in Isaiah and Jeremiah and elsewhere in the prophets were not fully realized at Christ's first coming. Their ultimate fulfillment awaits his second advent. Therefore, today we're going to bring this advent season to a close by focusing upon the present and future reign of the Messiah from Isaiah 49, focusing especially upon the first half of that chapter, verses 1 to 13, which contains another of Isaiah's famous servant songs. These verses focus upon what is for us the present reign of Christ, who is right now, ever since his ascension, seated at the right hand of the Father and is reigning over an ever-expanding kingdom, an ever-expanding church, which is the kingdom of God on earth. Along the way this morning, however, we will also look ahead to the future reign of Christ. At that time when heaven and earth are once again joined together, when the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant upon the earth become one, and Christ reigns over all creation in the midst of his redeemed people. Before we begin, though, I need to establish in our minds a a framework for understanding the reign of the Messiah. Now, obviously, if we're talking about the reign of Christ, this implies that Jesus has a kingdom over which he reigns. He has a dominion. In the New Testament, this is known as the kingdom of God, or sometimes in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. I give a simple definition of the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God exists wherever the forces of darkness are defeated, wherever the power of sin is abolished, and wherever a redeemed people joyfully submit to the rule and reign of Christ the King. But the full biblical picture of the kingdom of God can be a little more complex than that. It presents the kingdom of God as a a present 
and a future reality. So in order to bring some clarity to this issue, I'm going to give you, as we begin this morning, six biblical propositions concerning the kingdom of God and of Christ's reign over that kingdom. I would have liked to have included these on the bulletin, but Mary Kay wouldn't let me because she said I had too much already. So, just sit back. Here are six biblical propositions concerning the kingdom of God and the reign of Christ. Number one, the kingdom of God was once visibly present upon the earth. In the Garden of Eden, where man dwelled in the presence of God in faithful and glad obedience and in joyful fellowship with God. But when man fell... God removed, he withdrew his kingdom from the earth. And into that power vacuum, as it were, stepped Satan, who established by God's ordained act of judgment his own rebel kingdom, a kingdom of sin and of darkness ruled by fear. Specifically, Hebrews 2.14, the fear of death. Number two, when Christ was born... More than that, when he appeared upon the scene in Galilee to begin his public ministry, it was as if the Messiah, the true son of Adam, son of David, son of God, from Isaiah 9, in other words, earth's rightful king had arrived upon the shores of enemy territory and had begun to push back the forces of darkness and to reestablish his reign. There's that Wonderful scene in Mark chapter 1, right after the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, where he comes into Capernaum, and it's like the forces of darkness converge upon him. He's even in the synagogue, and a demon-possessed man comes in and starts causing a ruckus. All that night, demon-possessed men are coming to him, and he's casting them out left and right. What he's doing is is pushing back the, the ranks of the forces of darkness, and he is, he's planting his flag once again upon the earth. This is clear from the way that John the Baptist and Jesus speak of the kingdom of God as an imminent, even present reality. When John the Baptist appeared on the scene, he announced to Israel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Likewise, when Jesus began his public ministry, his message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the midst of his constant battles with the Pharisees, Jesus responded to their accusation in Mark chapter 3, Matthew chapter 12. Their accusation that he was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, by the power of Satan. Jesus responded to their accusations with this astonishing claim. Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. If you see me driving back the forces of darkness, you know that the kingdom has come once again to the earth. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's what Jesus came to do. He came, he bound the strong man, namely Satan, and he's been plundering Satan's realm ever since. So the kingdom of God is a present reality because the king has come to establish his reign. And when Christ died and rose again, he dealt the forces of darkness and the power of sin a decisive 
triumphant blow. Third, the kingdom of God is presently invisible and heavenly because Christ's reign is invisible and heavenly. And Jesus' first coming, at his first advent, he didn't establish an earthly kingdom. He didn't establish an earthly throne. In fact, he told Pilate at his trial, my kingdom is not of this world. When Christ died and rose again, he ascended, however, to the right hand of the Father, and it is there that he reigns until the time of the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 23, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign, he reigns now, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed at the resurrection of of the just and the unjust, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, number three, Christ presently reigns over a present kingdom, but he has not yet destroyed every rule, nor every authority or power, nor every enemy. That will take place at the end, at Christ's second coming, when the dead are raised and judged when Christ returns. So, if Christ presently reigns, we got to ask, where is his throne and where is his kingdom? Well, it's invisible and heavenly. Christ is enthroned, Ephesians 2, 6, in the heavenly places with his glorified saints. Fourth, because Christ's present kingdom and reign are invisible and heavenly, you cannot go there, you cannot see it, you cannot touch it unless you die. But you can enter into it spiritually through faith and submission to Christ as king. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. It is surrounded in the midst of enemy territory. The best analogy I've come across, I think it comes from Michael Horton, is that of an embassy. The United States, for instance, has an embassy in Beijing, China. All around that embassy is foreign Chinese soil, ruled by Chinese law, occupied by Chinese citizens under the authority of the Chinese president. But inside that embassy is American soil, ruled by American law, occupied by American citizens under the authority of the American president. The church is like an embassy of the kingdom of God on foreign soil. Not the building. This isn't sacred space when the church isn't gathered. The gathered people, the church, is the kingdom of God on earth. When the church gathers, this is no longer the kingdom of the world. This is officially the kingdom of God. We are citizens of his kingdom by faith. We are ruled by the laws of his kingdom, namely scripture. We are under the authority, not of the God of this world, but under the authority of Christ, the king of the everlasting kingdom. For the past 2,000 years, embassies of the kingdom of God have been established in the midst of nearly every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on earth. And that expansion will continue until the kingdom of Christ has spread to the ends of the earth. And then, and only then, Matthew twenty four fourteen will the end come. Fifth, at the second advent of Christ, 
the kingdom of this world will finally fall. Satan will be finally defeated. All enemies of the kingdom will be finally judged. And the whole earth will finally come under the authority of Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. By the way, we're going to be jumping all over scripture this morning. So keep your fingers nimble and your mind quick. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. On that day, the day of Christ's return, he will gather the living and raise the dead, and all people, great and small, will stand before his throne in judgment. Those who have abandoned their rebellion and joined him, who have hoped for his coming and submitted to his rule, will be everlastingly saved. Those who have remained in rebellion against him will be eternally damned. Sixth, then Christ will utter the command, The first heaven and the first earth will give way to a new heaven and a new earth where once again heaven and earth are united and God dwells in the midst of his people. It's described in Revelation 21. Then the kingdom of God will be visible and earthly and heavenly because heaven and earth are joined together once again and it will be universal and it will be eternal and Christ's kingdom and authority will know no end. In summary then, God withdrew his kingdom from the earth when Adam sinned. In his absence, Satan established his own kingdom upon the earth and thus is known in scripture as the God or ruler of this world, the prince of this world. At his first advent, Jesus invaded Satan's kingdom and established the kingdom of God, re-established the kingdom of God. By his death and resurrection, he destroyed the power of sin and dealt Satan the decisive blow. He then ascended to the heavenly throne, sat down at the right hand of God, where he presently reigns over an ever-expanding kingdom. That kingdom is invisible and heavenly, though it is present on earth in the church. Whenever a person repents of their sin and trusts in Christ, they enter into Christ's kingdom and they come underneath Christ's rule and protection. One day, Christ will return to bring salvation to his people, to judge his enemies, and to establish his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell in the midst of his redeemed people in everlasting glory and joy, world without end. There, there's a 10-minute theology of the kingdom of God. Now, you need that as the backdrop for what we're going to study today in Isaiah 49 which is the prophecy of the Messiah's present and future reign over the kingdom of God. And in this chapter, we're only going to focus on the first half, I see seven aspects of the Messiah's reign. First, we see the call of the king. Isaiah 49.1 Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Now, when I say the call of the king, I mean call in two senses, a subjective sense and an objective sense. Here's what I mean. In the first instance, the servant of the Lord, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, he is the subject of the call. He is the one who calls out to the coastlands and to the peoples from afar. And he says, listen to me. 
He has a message that is of universal relevance. It's not just for the Jews, it's for the nations. This is a point of critical importance for understanding of Christ's present and future reign. He is not only Israel's Messiah. He is the Messiah of all peoples and of all nations. He has not come to separate Israel from the nations that surround it. He has come that through Israel, his salvation might extend to the nations that surround it. In other words, the Messiah's call at the beginning of verse 1 is a universal call. It extends to the coastlands, that is to the people who are the most distant, the most far off. Just like Paul said in Romans chapter 3, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Or Paul's words in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you, want, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. In other words, Jew and Gentile together in one new man, namely the church. So making peace, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And notice this. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, coastlands, people afar, and to you who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the Messiah is a universal Savior. Therefore, his call is a universal call. His salvation is a universal salvation. His kingdom is a universal kingdom. And so he reigns over all the nations of the earth. Now, the other sense in which I use the word call is in an objective sense. In other words, Jesus is the object of this call. God's call. God called him. He calls to the coastlands. Because God called to him. On what basis is the servant qualified to call out to the nations and offer them salvation? On what basis does he have the right to demand their attention? Indeed, their faith and their obedience. He says it's because the Lord called him from his mother's womb and named him. One thinks of the angel's announcement to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, right? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Or of Gabriel's announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will know no end. So we find in Isaiah 49.1 that the servant of the Lord is certain of his divine calling to save his people from their sins and to reign over the kingdom of God forever. And it's on that certainty, on the basis of that call, that he then issues the call to the nations. And he says, listen to me. I have a message for you. 
A message of salvation, a message of a kingdom, and a message of a king. Secondly, we see the cultivation of the king. The servant continues in verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. So he's continuing to list his qualifications. So not only has he been called of God to bring salvation to the nations, he's also been carefully cultivated by God so that he is perfectly suited for the job. There seem to be, there's, there's a parallelism, kind of A, B, A, B going on here. So there's, there's two main aspects of this cultivation that, that he highlights. The first is of the Messiah's education. Now, I hit on this point a few weeks ago from Isaiah 9 when we focused upon what theologians call the hypostatic union, that is the union of Christ's divine substance and his human substance, his divine nature and his human nature joined in in this ineffable union in the person of Christ. Remember we asked the question from Isaiah 9, 6, how can the mighty God be born? How can the everlasting Father be also the Son who is given? I pointed out that Jesus therefore had to develop in the natural human way. In other words, he wasn't born knowing how to read. He had to learn how to read. He wasn't born knowing the scriptures. He had to learn the scriptures. It reminds me of that scene in the, in the movie Major League when uh, Pedro Serrano, who's a, a Cuban defector who practices voodoo, and he's sitting there in front of his locker in which he's constructed this uh, voodoo altar to his god, Jobu, right? And Serrano is there in the locker room, and he's offering cigars and, and rum to Jobu, and he's explaining to his teammates, forgive my, my terrible accent, he says, bats, they are, they are sick. I cannot hit curveball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curveball, bats are afraid. So I asked Jobu to come and take fear from bats, and then, and then Eddie Harris, who's this aging pitcher, who's a, kind of a caricatured version of an evangelical Christian, he comes up and he says, you know, you might think about taking Jesus Christ as your Savior instead of fooling around with all this stuff. And Serrano looks at him and he replies, he goes, ah, Jesus, I like him very much, but he no help with curveball. Harris then says indignantly, you trying to say Jesus Christ can't hit a curveball? I thought about that, I don't know why, but it came to mind because even though it's a rather ridiculous interchange, it demonstrates a point. No, Jesus Christ couldn't have hit a curveball unless, like all good hitters, he was taught to keep his weight on his back leg and recognize the spin coming out of the pitcher's hand. In his human nature, The Messiah's mouth was not naturally a sharp sword nor a polished arrow. He had to learn. He had to grow. He had to develop. He had to be educated. The servant of the Lord will later say in Isaiah, in the next chapter, Isaiah 50, said, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. And you remember Luke's brief summary of the first 30 years of Jesus's life when in Luke 2.52, he says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
In other words, the first 30 years of Jesus' life were a time of development, growth, education, and it was not without profit. It was during that time that Jesus learned the scriptures backwards and forwards. He learned God backwards and forwards as far as his human nature goes. And so the servant continues in the very next verse. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. Then when the Holy Spirit descended upon him at his baptism, all of that training, all of that education was lit aflame. And his mouth became a sharp sword, able to pierce the hardened hearts of his elect and lay them bare. And his words became a polished arrow, cutting swift and straight through the air to pierce the soul of his hearers. And suddenly, we hear things like this. John seven forty six. No one ever spoke like this man. Do you remember that? The Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes, they send the, uh, the, the temple guard to go arrest Jesus. And the, and the guards go, and they're just struck dumbfounded by his teaching. And so they go back to the, the authorities empty-handed, and they said, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, no one ever spoke like this man. Or Matthew 7, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. But we also find in scripture that the sword of Jesus' mouth cuts both ways. Sometimes it cuts in order to save. Sometimes it cuts in order to judge. That's why in John's vision of the second advent of Christ in Revelation 19, he says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. But in this age, today, the mouth of the king speaks words of salvation. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all who mourn. We'll come back to that thought at the end. The second thought of this verse is that of the Messiah's protection. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. In his quiver, he hid me away. The servant was hidden away. He was protected from every enemy until the appointed time. Again, one thinks of the way that Jesus was protected from Herod during the slaughter of the infants of Bethlehem or how he lived under the radar in Galilee until the time of his appearing or how he repeatedly during his ministry escaped death until the time came for him to be handed over. The point is that the Lord fashioned his servant into a sharp sword and a polished arrow until such a time as he was ready to unleash him upon the world. Third, the servant speaks of the covenant which the Lord made with him in verse 3. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. There is a whole lot packed in this single verse, and we can only scratch the surface this morning. 
Essentially, the servant of the Lord is presented here as the ideal Israel. The figure who represents Israel as Israel was meant to be. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he established a covenant with the nation. They would be his holy people. He would be their holy God. Israel would be God's firstborn son, like Adam. Exodus 4.22, his kingdom of priests, exercising dominion like Adam. Exodus 19.5, to spread the knowledge of God throughout the earth. In essence, Israel was called out by God, was covenanted to God in order to be what humanity itself was meant to be and had failed to be. But Israel failed to be that holy nation. They broke God's covenant. Therefore, Israel, as well as the rest of mankind, is under the judgment of God. But what we find here in verse 3 is that God is sending forth his servant to be what Israel was meant to be and to do what Israel was meant to do. That is, to love and trust and obey God with all of his heart and life and to spread the saving knowledge of God throughout the earth. In short, The servant will glorify God as Israel and as all mankind was meant to glorify God. God created man to reign over the earth under his authority in glad and faithful obedience to her creator. But mankind fell and failed under that first covenant of creation. God then called Abraham. And after him, he called Israel and he established Israel in the promised land to reign once again as the prince over the nations, as the light to the Gentiles. But Israel too fell and failed under the covenant of Sinai. But then God called and sent forth his servant, his own son, who succeeded where Israel failed, thus fulfilling the Sinai covenant. And more than that, he succeeded where the first Adam failed, thus fulfilling the covenant of creation. And with his faithful and obedient servant, God has now established a new covenant, a covenant between God and Christ, who represents in that covenant all of his elect, all who turn from sin and trust in him. That's what we saw pictured this morning in Gary's baptism, was Gary's inclusion in that new covenant between God and his servant. And now the church Both Jew and Gentile are the one covenant people of God. And it is the church through whom God fulfills his purpose. And it is the church with Christ as the head that will one day reign upon the earth with Christ. Fourth, this did not, however, come easily. As we saw last week, the redemption of sinners, the mediating of this new covenant, the reconciling of God and man, the glorification of God in salvation and judgment came through much suffering by the servant of the Lord. So we look at verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. As Jesus trudged through the streets of Jerusalem bearing the the cross of Golgotha, where he would be ignominiously and horrendously executed. Could it be that he reflected upon the previous three years of his ministry? Could it be that he asked himself, what do I have to show for all of this suffering? He had come to his own, and his own had received him not. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and 
one from whom men hide their face. We read through the gospel accounts and we find that Jesus surely drove away far more followers than he managed to attain. John 6 is an example where he begins the chapter with thousands of followers and he ends with 12. He's just been betrayed by one of his disciples. He's been abandoned by the rest. His closest friend has betrayed him and denied under oath and with cursing that he even knew him. Is it not possible that in his humanity, such thoughts were rolling through his head before he was crushed under the weight of God's wrath? He must have been crushed under the weight of disappointment, but not for long. Because we see in the second half of verse 4 that faith won out as it had in the Garden of Gethsemane, as it would once again at the cross. Yet, he says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing, for vanity. Yet, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. So the faith of the Messiah was severely tested, but it prevailed. The servant prevailed, and in so doing, he won our salvation. Which then brings us to the apex of the passage. The message which the servant of the Lord now speaks to the coastlands and the peoples from afar. Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says it is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And you got to ask yourself, what happened between verse 4 and verse 5? How does the servant get from all my work is in vain, yet I will trust in God, sounds kind of like father into your hands, I commit my spirit, to this declaration of victory in verse 5. The answer is that God raised his servant from the dead. It was in the resurrection that it went from I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which was Jesus' statement prior to the cross. That became transformed into go therefore and make disciples of all nations after the cross. The servant of the Lord was never meant to be a merely Jewish Messiah. Isaiah 49 proves that. But it was his resurrection, it was in his resurrection that he was awarded, as it were, the nations as his inheritance. You heard Mike quote earlier from Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, because he was obedient to the point of death, because he was faithful to the Father's will, even to the point of death, even the death of the cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in things, of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was, for, it was because he had triumphed through the cross that God raised his servant from the dead, seated him at his right hand, and awarded him an everlasting kingdom. Which again is precisely what Daniel saw in his night visions of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man in Daniel 7. Behold, 
I saw with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And how does the light of Christ extend to the nations? How does the salvation which he purchased at the cross extend to the ends of the earth? It's through the preaching of the gospel which is carried out by his church. Christ conquered sin and death and hell on the cross and he conquers unbelief and rebellion through the preaching of the gospel. And one day he will conquer all his enemies through the sword of judgment which proceeds from his mouth. And then... He shall sit enthroned in everlasting glory, worshipped by the redeemed of every nation and honored by all creation. Verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and of his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So we see that this man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised and rejected of men, condemned and tried and killed by the rulers of his day, will one day be exalted in the eyes of all men. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Or Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh there is written a name, which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when Christ is crowned as King and Sovereign, all other earthly thrones will fall. And then I want you to notice the, the terminus of this glory. The King's He says, shall see and arise. What will they see? They'll see the exalted servant, the Lord Christ. Then they shall prostrate themselves in fear, in honor. Why? Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This entirely fits with the flow of of the New Testament thought. Think once again of Philippians 2. Right At the name of Jesus, when he is highly exalted and given the name that is above every name, at his name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the ultimate glory of God the Father. Or Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. God isn't subject to Jesus. Jesus is subject to God. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Saying the same thing that Isaiah 49, 7 says. When Christ, the servant of the Lord, is exalted and crowned Lord of all, then God the Father will be glorified as all in all. And what of those who trust him? What of those who gladly submit to his rule and reign? 
to them now in this day, God speaks comfort and peace. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, picturing them like sheep, and all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion. On his afflicted. So the servant of the Lord, that's Jesus, has been given as a covenant to the people, that's us, to establish a land, that's the new heavens and the new earth, to apportion our inheritance, verse 8. He calls out today, now, in this day of salvation, to those who are imprisoned by sin and guilt, and he says, come out. And he calls out to those who are mired in the darkness of their sin, and he says, appear. And he promises that if they will come out, if they will appear, they will never hunger and they will never thirst again. And they will come. They will come from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every tongue. And when they do, the heavens will sing for joy and the earth will exult and the mountains will break forth with loud singing. Why? Because the Lord has comforted his people. He's had compassion upon the afflicted. And the question is, as we close this Advent season, will you be among them? Are you in verses 8 to 13? Are you among those to whom Jesus calls on the coastlands and far off in the dark, far reaches of your sin? Are you among those to whom he says, come out. Come out, O prisoners of sin and prisoners of guilt and prisoners of the flesh doing what you don't want to do. Come out and I will set you free. And he says to those who are in the darkness of iniquity and the darkness of their flesh and in the darkness of all of the kingdoms of this world, he says, appear. And when you do, I will make you one of my sheep and I will lead you beside still waters and I will lead you to the springs of living water and you'll drink and you'll live forever. That's what the servant of the Lord is saying this morning to you, but he won't say it forever. Because the same servant who has the same sword coming out of his mouth, one day the heavens are going to split open and you're going to see him descending on the clouds with power and great glory and that sword will no longer cut in the way of salvation. Cut so as to heal. It will cut so as to destroy. Make no mistake, Jesus reigns now. God has awarded his servant the kingdom now. He is seated now at the right hand of the Father. And one day he's coming. And he's going to gather his saved, those who have come out 
from the prisons, those who have appeared from the darkness, those who have bowed the knee to Christ. He's going to gather them together. He's going to bestow new and everlasting life upon them, and they will enter into his everlasting kingdom, blameless with great joy. Is that you? Are you among them? Because if not, let me tell you what awaits you. The king's going to come back, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Indeed, they will run to the caves and the rocks, and they will say, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb." But there is no hiding. God will raise all of the dead and he will gather all of the living and they will stand before the throne of his servant, Jesus Christ, and he will judge them on the basis of what they have done. And if their names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life, they will be cast into the lake of fire which burns forever and ever in the presence of our God. Those who submit gladly and joyfully to the present reign of Christ will enjoy forever the future reign of Christ. Those who continue in their self-willed sin and rebellion during this present reign of Christ will be everlastingly punished under the future reign of Christ. So I implore you this morning to hear the call of the King. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. If you come to Christ today, you will find him compassionate. You'll find him comforting. You'll find him willing to save. Unwilling to turn any away. If you try to come to him on the last day, you'll hear him say something completely different. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you.